This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Jean and Jane. I don't know if I'm unhappy because I'm not free, or if I'm not free because I'm unhappy. I say our responsibility as Americans is to be concerned about what our country is doing. The suicide of Jean Seberg, the young actress from Iowa. Are you ready to do the workout? episode, Jane Seberg had just been liberated from professional servitude to director Otto Preminger with the help of her French boyfriend, lawyer Francois Moroy, and Columbia Pictures. And Jane Fonda had just left her own male mentor behind in New York to seek new professional opportunities abroad. Today, we'll explore how each woman found a new identity in Paris. We'll start with Jean and tell the story of how she ended up starring in the film that would come to embody the French New Wave. Then we'll move on to Jane Fonda's first years in Paris, a place she came to make one movie and ended up buying property in thanks to her relationship with Roger Vadim, who in addition to being a friend of Jean's first husband, was the director and provocateur who had discovered Brigitte Bardot and who did as much to define what the sexual revolution would look like from the European side as Hugh Hefner would for America. Join us, won't you, for Chapter 3 of Jean and Jane. Bon 
Monsieur Tristesse is a better movie than St. Joan. It's more commercial and accessible, and Jean Seberg is better in it than she was in her previous collaboration with Otto Preminger. And yet, when Bonjour opened in the U.S. in 1958, it was greeted with generally indifferent reviews. As part of the promotional process, on January 4, 1958, Seberg submitted to a TV interview with Mike Wallace, which became surprisingly interrogatory. Tonight, we go after the story of a girl who personifies an American dream. The dream of sudden money, sudden glamour, and sudden fame as a motion picture star. Our guest is 19-year-old Jean Seberg, who was an Iowa schoolgirl before she was chosen in a talent contest just a year ago to star in her first film, St. Joan. Both she and the film were panned by the critics. Could you conceivably shrug your shoulders and say to yourself, well, it was fun while it lasted and you pack up your bags and go back to Marshalltown, Iowa? I don't think so. You don't think you No, could? because it would be especially hard to go back if I went back admitting to myself that I had failed. That's probably, possibly, a silly sort of pride, but it's true. Jean, tell like me it. this. If you had it to do over again, it sounds so silly because you've only been in it a year. But you were made. You are a synthetic star. Yes. You have no real professional background. Mm. You are a pretty girl, but not the prettiest girl in the world. Otto Preminger found you, and in a sense, played God with you. And the first one, you came a cropper. And the second one, you're sitting here waiting. If you had it to do again, would you rather learn your job first and become a star or become a celebrity second? Or would you be perfectly content to do it the quick and the easy way that you've done it? Well, first, I'll disagree with you, if I may, because Surely. certainly it hasn't been an easy way for me, because in a sense I've been taking my acting lessons in the most public possible way, because having no professional experience before, I made all the mistakes which ordinarily, when you perhaps play a, a small part and graduate into larger parts on the stage or the screen you make, but no one notices until you gain assurance. So I don't think it's been easy. However, uh... I would have welcomed the opportunity to study. I went to college six days. Absorbing the reaction to Bonjour Tristesse, and after having her very right to exist called into question by men like Wallace, Jean felt incredibly defeated. While she was in New York for interviews like this one, she went to see acting guru Lee Strasberg and asked him for help. He told her to go home and write a formal application to the actor's studio. She did as she was told, and she never got a reply. That, she'd say later, was kind of the final blow. She felt, she said, personally and professionally bankrupt. People in her life who had been treating her like a star just a few months before suddenly disappeared. With Jean adrift, she and Francois decided to marry, and in her attempt to appease the place she came from and its values, they decided to do it in Marshalltown. But unlike the typical hometown girl, Jean ceded the wedding arrangements to her long-haired French husband-to-be, who took charge of everything, from flower arrangements to insisting that caviar be served as part of the wedding meal. 
He even flew in a borrowed private plane to Chicago to pick up champagne. This type of flourish did not exactly endear him to Jean's Iowa family. Francois and Jean honeymooned in Saint-Tropez, where they joined the social swirl of Francois' friend, Roger Vadim. Half French, half Russian, Vadim had grown up in occupied Paris and rural France. When his family moved mid-war to a farmhouse near the Alps, teenage Vadim helped Jews cross the border. At 16, he had lost his virginity in a barn, and when the earth started moving, Vadim assumed that was just what sex was. Later, he realized that on that June evening, Allied troops were landing on the nearby shores of Normandy. These types of stories were typical of Vadim, typical of the epic life he led, and typical of his tendency to elevate everything that happened to him to the realm of myth. After the war, Vadim had worked as a photojournalist, and then, in 1950, 22-year-old Vadim met a 15-year-old dancer named Brigitte Bardot. They married the day she turned 18, at which point Vadim began plotting to bottle his new wife's sexual appeal and sell it to horny, slightly older married men like himself. After distributing sexy photos of Bardot, which helped her get cast in a number of films, Vadim wrote what he designed as the ultimate vehicle for his wife's sexual persona, a Saint-Tropez-set sexual rondelet starring Bardot as a woman whose sexuality spreads like wildfire through three men. As Vadim explained, I wanted to show a normal young girl whose only difference was she behaved the way a boy might, without any sense of guilt on a moral or sexual level. That movie was called and God created woman. Life imitated art. On the set, where Vadim was directing her, Bardot began having an open affair with her co-star, Jean-Louis Trintignant. Vadim essentially shrugged this off, at least at first. Bardot was just following her nature, he reasoned. Vadim continued conjuring films for Bardot, until he moved on to his next muse, a Danish teenager named Annette Stroiberg. Stroiberg had given birth to Vadim's child in 1957. That summer of 1958, when Jean and Francois were on honeymoon in Saint-Tropez, they socialized with Vadim and his crew of hangers-on. One night, a significant rainstorm began during a dinner party at Vadim's house, and the roads were too dangerous to drive home on, so Jean and Francois were invited to spend the night. At her core, Jean was still the small-town, church-going girl of her youth, and Vadim's highly sexual glamour intimidated and even terrified her. The last thing she wanted to do was spend the night at his house. Francois took this as an early sign that the different worlds he and his wife came from would not be easily bridged. After Saint-Tropez, the newlywed set up housekeeping in Paris, and Jean commuted to London to shoot her first movie for Columbia, The Mouse That Roared, a vehicle for Peter Sellers. Columbia believed in Jean as a star, even if she hadn't yet proved herself as either an actress or a box office draw. She's made two movies, both bad, but she's still popular, marveled publicist Martin Goldblatt, who added... 
She gives hope to American teenagers that someone might discover them. When that shoot was over, Jean settled into what was now her real life as wife to a nightlife-loving Frenchman, and her mood fell down to earth. She had no friends in Paris, where she felt like an outsider. She still wasn't fluent in the language, although she was getting better. At the same time, she was acutely aware that she couldn't go home again to Iowa, a place where she had always felt different, even before the cosmopolitan celebrity the last three years had brought. She decided to try to find herself in her work, and with the support of her new studio, and without her husband, she traveled from Paris to Los Angeles to take acting classes with Columbia coach Peyton Price. Price brought to Hollywood a taste of the kind of psychologically engaged work that actors were doing in New York, with teachers like Strasberg and Stella Adler. He also anticipated the bohemian turn the film industry would take in the coming decade. He was openly politically liberal, and he talked with his students about the importance of their being open and engaged in their personal lives, politically, emotionally, and sexually. Price's openness and warmth was, of course, the total opposite of Preminger. And over the course of a few months of classes, Jean began to feel much better. She was putting her personality back together. But Columbia hadn't cast her in anything since the Sellers movie, and she still had a husband. So in the summer of 1959, Jean returned to France. There she found that her lawyer husband, who harbored fantasies of directing movies himself, had begun ingratiating himself with some of the young, would-be filmmakers of Paris. When Jean returned from her semester in Los Angeles, Francois told her that Jean-Luc Godard wanted to meet her. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Since the early 1950s, Jean-Luc Godard had been working with a group of young filmmakers in Paris, including Jacques Rivette, Eric Romer, and Francois Truffaut. This group had met each other, frequenting screenings of old movies at the Paris Cinémathèque and Cinema Club of the Latin Quarter, and many of its members, Godard included, would work as film critics for a new magazine called Cahiers de Cinéma, or Film Notebook. In 1952, Cahiers ran a review of Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train, written by then 22-year-old Godard, and this became the first of many tributes to the British director's Hollywood work in this French magazine's pages. Godard and his young compatriots adored Hitchcock and felt his films were the apotheosis of what the Hollywood studio system could do. And this feeling was in rebellion to an older generation of French cinephiles. 
In later articles in the magazine, Godard would champion other studio system stalwarts, like Howard Hawks and Otto Preminger, filmmakers who were then considered corporate hacks by the preeminent French intellectuals. And it wasn't much different in America. While a Hawks or a Preminger would be valued within the industry for making a fair percentage of hits, no one was yet singling these directors out for their style or vision. For better or for worse, an Orson Welles was considered an artist. Directors like Preminger, who worked within the established modes and genres of commercial Hollywood filmmaking without asserting evident personal flourishes, were not. Not until the Cahiers de Cinema writers started singling these directors out as the true authors, or auteurs, of the films they made, who managed to create fine art out of the materials and in formats that had purely commercial intents. According to this theory, an auteur director's entire body of work was worthy of attention, and not just the commercial hits that Hollywood valued. Beginning in 1954 with the publication of Francois Truffaut's essay, A Certain Tendency of the French Cinema, Cahiers de Cinema would become the petri dish for the development of, and debates concerning, auteur theory, which led to the lionization of certain Hollywood directors first by the French, and eventually by American universities, nonprofit institutions, and way, way down the line, Hollywood itself. In their writings, critics like Truffaut and Godard were working out a philosophy of cinema that they would soon put into practice. They began making short films, using locations available to them, donated film stock, and what little funding they could scrounge up. Claude Chabrol was the first of the group to graduate to features, and Truffaut was the first to earn international attention, with his debut feature, The 400 Blows, which won the Best Director Prize at the 1959 Cannes Film Festival. Truffaut and Chabrol then agreed to collaborate with Godard on his first feature, about a French thief and his American girlfriend. Godard had one actress in mind for the role of the American girl. An avid admirer of Otto Preminger, Godard was aware of Seberg's performances in St. Joan and Bonjour Tristesse. Godard had rated the latter as the third best film of the previous year in Cahiers. And he knew that Seberg was accessible. Godard had met Francois Moroy, and he had eagerly agreed to set up a meeting between the novice filmmaker and his wife. Jean was not exactly immediately impressed by Godard. She was suspicious of his disheveled look, anchored by the dark glasses that would become his signature, and she was unnerved by his refusal to look her in the eye when they were talking. But she liked one of his short films, and when Godard told her he saw the character of Patricia as Cécile from Bonjour Tristesse, aged by three years, she was intrigued. Columbia wasn't offering her anything better, so she agreed to have her husband go to Hollywood to talk to the studio about lending her to Godard. Apparently, Francois told Harry Cohn that Seberg would quit the movie business altogether if they barred her from working with Godard. And apparently, despite the fact that her two American movies had flopped, Columbia thought highly enough of Seberg's prospects that this convinced them to let her make Godard's movie. Breathless. Breathless was the story of a charismatic criminal on the run, played as a hip, quasi-Humphrey Bogart homage by Jean-Paul Belmondo, 
and the girl who could be his accomplice, his saving grace, or his destruction. It was inspired by American crime movies, but formally it broke all the rules. Where the Hollywood auteurs, primarily shot on studio soundstages and backlots, using massive fixed cameras and sophisticated and complicated lighting setups designed to give the audience subtle cues about how to read the action and the characters. Godard shot on the streets and real interiors of Paris, with a handheld camera and available light. The soon-to-be iconic scene featuring Seberg and Belmondo walking down the Champs-Élysées in the middle of the day was accomplished by hiding cinematographer Raoul Cotard and his tiny newsreel-style camera in a delivery cart with holes cut in the sides for the camera. When they shot Belmondo's death scene, which featured the actor stumbling into the street, bleeding, real crowds surrounded the tiny crew, as though looky-looing at a real death. Working with Preminger, Seberg had been given a trial by fire by a self-styled maverick director who was also a master of conventional cinematic form. Godard was determined to break the conventional rules, although as he was trained only through his insatiable consumption of movies, he wasn't always fluent in the conventions that he was manipulating or breaking. For instance, instead of asking the cinematographer to shoot a close-up, Godard would ask that the actor's breast pocket be excluded from the frame. Forced to hire a makeup artist so as not to wrinkle the union, Godard wouldn't let her actually apply standard screen makeup to Seberg. What there was of a script going into the production proved to be unworkable, so the director would write the day's dialogue each morning over breakfast. When they had no time to learn their lines, Godard would cue the actors off-camera, and they would just repeat him word for word. Other times, Godard would throw Seberg into entirely unscripted situations. The entire shooting schedule was subject to Godard's whims of inspiration, and he'd regularly send the whole company home early so he could brainstorm what to shoot the following day. When his initial cut of the film proved to be about an hour too long, Godard threw out the rules of narrative continuity editing and instead cut out every moment that he found less than thrilling. Thus was born The Jump Cut, a sudden and seemingly random transition from one shot to another, sometimes changing the scene and other times shifting to a later moment in the same scene and always drawing attention to the construction of the film rather than lulling the viewer into forgetting that they were watching a movie at all. Gene Seberg was unsettled by Godard himself, who always wore the same unlaundered suit. Neither she nor Belmondo had much faith that the film they were making would even see the light of day. But Jean didn't have anything better to do, so she did as she was asked. Then, Jean was called back to Hollywood to appear in a Columbia film, called Let No Man Write My Epitaph. There, she resumed classes with Peyton Price, who had been let go by Columbia for his unconventional methods. Jean insisted that he relocate his classes to the living room of her apartment on Olympic Boulevard. In Price's classes, Jean became close to Dennis Hopper. Around this time, she also began spending time with another young actor— named John Gilmore, who had previously had a brief affair with Jane Fonda in New York. In his memoirs, Gilmore would paint a picture of Jean as a very lonely girl, 
who was afraid to be alone. She confessed to Gilmore that she was scared of running into Otto Preminger in Los Angeles. And she wouldn't go anywhere in town, anywhere near where she suspected Preminger might be. Gilmore believed that her personality was essentially split into two warring factions. And one day, she confirmed to him that she felt the same way. She had two devils in her, she told him, pointing to either side of her collarbones. Gilmore was like, you mean you have an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other? No, Jean told him. In her case, they were both devils. Gilmore said he and Jean talked about marriage, but he felt like he couldn't really reach her. Gilmore reported that she told him her current marriage was essentially over, and that she described Francois as a nice guy, but a damned greedy opportunist. Whether or not she had been ready to leave her husband before her affair with Gilmore petered out, that she hadn't hesitated once again to take the trip to Los Angeles sans Francois, said something about the state of their marriage. She realized that they had married impulsively, partially because she had been so needy at the end of the Preminger era, but now she had started to feel as though Francois had used her. He seemed to be more attracted to her stardom than he was to her, and financially, he wasn't pulling his own weight in the marriage. But she did let him come stay with her in L.A. for Christmas. Francois suspected that his wife had had lovers, but as far as he could tell, she didn't have any friends or any kind of social life that she wanted to share with him. He made it a project to try to get her to go out and mingle. One frequent location Francois dragged Jean out to was the French consulate, which was housed in a grand house in the Hollywood Hills. The consul general was Ramon Gary. Born in Lithuania, Gary had served in the French Air Force, gone into law, and had published an acclaimed novel by the time he was 30. Twelve years later, he was appointed the French Consul General in Los Angeles, and he moved to town with his wife, Leslie Blanche, who since the 1954 publication of her nonfiction book, The Wilder Shores of Love, was also a prestigious writer. Both were international literary celebrities, and an adaptation of one of Gary's books had recently been directed by John Huston, with Errol Flynn in the lead role. Jean was said to have fallen in love with 45-year-old Gary at first sight. His wife, Leslie, who was a few years older than him, was used to indulging his flirtations with little women like Jean. The spring of 1960, when both were in Paris, an affair between Jean and Gary began, and though Jean and Francois would soon quietly separate, with Jean in parting agreeing to star in Francois' first directorial effort, Ramon and Leslie did not separate. That spring, Breathless was released, and it became an instant smash hit. A film made by and for a generation that had grown up watching American films of the 1940s late, whether in Paris when they were finally exported after the war or in the States on TV, Breathless plundered Hollywood's past to update the trope of the sexy scoundrel for an age of pop art and post-war existential uncertainty. At the beginning of the film, Belmondo, from the driver's seat of his getaway car, addresses the camera in the passenger seat like it's his accomplice. 
From then on, the viewer is conscripted with him as he hustles his way through Paris, evading police and romancing Jean's newspaper girl. She tells him there must be prettier girls than her. He tells her he's tried sleeping with two of them since she left him and he didn't like it. She takes this in stride, but when he asks her why she doesn't wear a bra under her t-shirt, she's grossed out. This is the state of the sexual revolution circa 1960, as seen by Godard, who, as Jean told none other than Jane Fonda, was a misogynist. If Bonjour Tristesse had been a portrait of a teenager play-acting womanhood past the point of no return, by Breathless, Seberg seemed convincingly adult. Her body is more womanly, she confidently goes back and forth between French and English, and she holds her own in the film's long scene in which, in what now seems like an inherently rapey situation, Belmondo breaks into her hotel room and essentially refuses to leave, pestering her constantly to have sex with him. Her ability to so coolly rebuff him over and over makes his single-minded persistence seem progressively silly and sad. Of course, she does eventually give in, and this is enough to convince him that she is sweet Patricia, not the despicable Patricia that she earlier in the scene warned him that she was, or the coward that he's been accusing her of being. In The New Yorker, Pauline Kale dubbed Jean the most terrifyingly simple muse goddess bitch of modern movies. Certainly what makes her performance effective is its inscrutability. The Mona Lisa smile, the refusal to give the character a tell as to when she's lying and when she's being sincere. Ultimately, her betrayal of Belmondo's character feels of a piece with the idea that Patricia is a slightly older version of Cecile a young woman who plays games with other people's lives because she can, who doesn't imagine the consequences until it's too late. Also, with her fitted dresses and thin, dark glasses, she looks absolutely adorable doing it. Breathless played in four locations around Paris, a huge release for a film of its budget, and it ended up grossing something like 50 times what it had cost to make. Jean Seberg became an instant icon in France. Young women all over Paris began cutting their hair short like hers, adopting the simple, androgynous sexiness she had embodied in Godard's movie. She became so famous in France, and so hounded by the press, that she began to feel that her life was not her own. This kind of microscope was particularly unwelcome, given that she was not living with her legal husband, and was deeply in love with another woman's husband, who happened to be an extremely scandal-shy French diplomat. It all came to a head, and Jean suffered a breakdown. She was hospitalized outside of Paris, and then her husband and her lover agreed that the best thing for her would be for Jean to travel back to Marshalltown to rest. It was during this convalescence that Jean admitted to her parents that she planned to file for divorce. Be kind. 
time to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. As much as Jane Fonda had seen her journey to Paris to star in Joy House as a declaration of independence, tied in with her need to move beyond her father and cut herself off from Andreas, in Paris she found herself suffering from isolation and culture shock in a city where she only sort of spoke the language. She sought refuge in a friendship with Simone Signoret, the actress who was married to international star Yves Montand. Signoret inducted Jane into her social circle of artists and intellectuals, who more often than not met at her and Montan's tiny apartment on the Ile de la Cité, in the center of the Seine. But all was not lost in translation. In the Paris of 1963, Jane Fonda seemed to make more sense as a style icon and sex symbol than she had in New York or Hollywood previously. This had less to do with the movie she had come to Paris to make, which went into production without a finished script and never quite found its footing, than with the splash Jane made as the American in Paris du jour. The local culture was primed by Jean Seberg to pounce on Jane as the new epitome of American purity come cool. To the French, the Fondas were as much of a glamorous American dynasty as the Kennedys. Maybe even better because they were actual movie stars. Jane was almost immediately put on the cover of Cahiers de Cinema. Much of the French media compared her to Bardot, even though Jane at this point was hardly a bombshell. In fact, aside from her natural beauty and the thin frame she worked so hard to maintain, she had yet to come into her own as a sex symbol. So far, she had still played nothing but the deeply compromised, having it both ways fictional females of Hollywood movies of the 1960s. While making Joy House, Jane had a brief affair with her co-star, Alain Delon, breaking him up with his longtime girlfriend, actress Romy Schneider. Back in the States, Confidential Magazine ran on their March 1964 cover a story about the, quote, merry mix-up that made Hollywood flip in which they noted that Schneider had been seen on dates in New York with Henry Fonda a year earlier. But Jane wasn't interested in Delon for the long haul, and by the time Confidential ran that story, she had long ago moved on. Jane celebrated turning 26 in December 1963 at a dinner party hosted by her French agent, Olga Horstig. The only other guest at the dinner party was Roger Vadim, who the agent had invited because she knew he was hoping to cast Jane in a remake of the Max O'Fulls film, La Ronde, which had starred Signore. Jane had met Vadim before, first at a nightclub during her brief collegiate stint in Paris, and then a few years later in Los Angeles, where he had asked to meet with her about a part in his adaptation of Dangerous Liaisons. Jane's agent had told her to dress sexy for her meeting with the man who discovered Bardot, but Jane was well aware of Vadim's reputation. 
She was no prude, but she had gotten such a rapey vibe from him in their brief first encounter in Paris that she was afraid to be alone with him. So she dressed for their meeting in unsexy jeans and no makeup. Though at that meeting, Vadim seemed to be less of a seducer than a sad sack, Jane assumed that this was an act, and she had told her agent she refused to work with him. Jane and Andreas had gone to see Vadim's liaison Stangerou together, and they had giggled derisively throughout at its pretentious eroticism. Now, at her three-person birthday dinner party, Jane and Vadim hit it off. Jane went home that night alone, responsibly aware of her 6 a.m. call time the next morning. When Jane and Vadim met a week later at a New Year's Eve party, he cornered her at 5 a.m. and kissed her. Again, she managed to shake him and make it home alone. A few days later, Vadim visited the studio where Jane was shooting. This time, she invited him back to her hotel, where they fell into bed, and he couldn't get it up. Vadim's impotence lasted a full three weeks, during which time he and Jane got to know each other. When finally the curse was broken, Jane wrote, we stayed in bed for two nights and a day. Jane and Vadim were in love, but not exactly at liberty. His relationship with Bardot had ended, and he had moved on to Annette Stroiberg, the Danish teenager who he had cast in Liaison Dangereux, and had had a daughter with her. Then, Vadim replaced Stroiberg with 17-year-old Catherine Deneuve, with whom he had also had a child, and whom he was still living with when he met Fonda. Vadim was also supporting Annette and her daughter, who were living across the hallway from him and Deneuve. When she finished shooting Joy House, Fonda agreed to star in Vadim's La Ronde remake, called Circle of Love, so that she could stay in Paris to be with him. She also rented her own house, so that Vadim could get some distance from the ghosts of relationships past and move in with her. This didn't mean they were rid of Vadim's baby mamas. In fact, her new French boyfriend expected Jane to welcome Stroiberg and Deneuve into their lives like members of the family which, for the most part, she obliged. They had their differences. Vadim drank too much and gambled, which she didn't like. Jane's bulimia and addiction to dance as exercise continued unabated, which he didn't know about. And as much as Vadim was modern and very French in that he had no problem indulging in a version of free love and having children out of wedlock, he was extremely traditional and very French, in other matters of gender roles. So was Jane at this point. Despite the fact that she was working at least as hard as her partner, she shouldered all of the responsibility for running their shared household. Vadim did no chores. He barely even paid for anything. When he and Jane met, he had few assets and no ready cash. He owed years of back taxes. This was a level of irresponsibility that Jane could never have fathomed for herself. But in a way, it made Vadim more attractive. She, consciously or otherwise, looked for disorder that she could fix. Vadim's failures at managing his own life gave Jane an opportunity to show him how indispensable she could become to him, which made her feel more secure in the relationship. 
And their physical connection, despite the early hiccups, was strong. And on the set of the first film in which Vadim directed Fonda, Circle of Love, their sex life played an important role. Actress and director would evidently roll out of bed and right onto set. Vadim directed Jane's male co-star by acting out the kissing scenes with Jane himself. Under Vadim's direction, Jane agreed to shed more clothing on screen than she had before, appearing on camera in a bra and panties. After filming, Vadim and Jane fled Paris for Saint-Tropez, and it was in that beachy paradise where Jane had an unlikely initial political awakening. Back in the States, Congress had just passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which gave President Lyndon Johnson authorization to bomb North Vietnam. Even on vacation, Jane's French lover and friends were paying attention to this news, and it horrified them. Jane had never been an avid follower of the political news, and she didn't totally understand what was happening in Vietnam. But now, she started paying attention. When the summer was over, Jane bought a farmhouse outside of Paris for her and Vadim to live in. Jane threw herself into restoring the house, supervising workers and tending to the many animals that she and Vadim surrounded themselves with, which included four cats, five dogs, and of course, his kids, male drinking buddies, and ex-wives. The work on the house would stretch over the course of three years. Shortly after they moved in, David Lean contacted Jane and offered her the part of Laura in Dr. Zhivago. She turned it down because she didn't want to leave the work on the house or leave Vadim to his own devices. But then, a few months later, Jane was offered another movie, a postmodern western called Cat Baloo. Vadim told her she should do this one, and he would come with her. Soon after the shoot, their first film collaboration, Circle of Love, was released in the States. By then, the film had opened all over Europe, where it was received more or less positively, and its tasteful sexuality caused no controversy. So Jane was shocked to arrive in New York and find that a Broadway movie theater owner had posted a billboard featuring an illustration of a naked Jane Fonda lying on her stomach in rumpled sheets. Jane was shocked at this exploitation of her body, not least because the billboard didn't represent an actual scene in the film, in which she never got fully nude. Jane filed a lawsuit against the theater, and in response, they draped a piece of canvas over the part of the billboard that showed her bare butt. This only turned the scandal into a joke, and though U.S. audiences didn't care for Circle of Love... The whole incident did much to establish Jane in moviegoers' minds in a new way. Before she had gone to Paris, she had been the essentially good girl who didn't belong in an increasingly sexually frank world. Now it was as though her time abroad had scrubbed the last vestiges of 1950s Puritanism off of her persona. And America was ready for the new Jane. On the heels of this scandal came the release of Cat Baloo, a comedy western that has a lot of bad stuff in it. Broad comedy that doesn't land, racial stereotyping. But unlike the two movies she had made in France, Cat Baloo was a major hit, and Jane got the reviews she had been waiting for her entire acting career. Better yet, Jane got a part she really wanted, opposite Marlon Brando in The Chase. 
Though the movie was set in small-town Texas, most of it was shot on sound stages in L.A. And so, Jane and Vadim moved to Malibu. The Chase script had problems, which led to Marlon Brando problems, which meant Jane had a lot of free time, and she spent much of it throwing parties to introduce Vadim to Hollywood. Jane had never really lived in Los Angeles for longer than a movie shoot since she had started seriously acting, but her Hollywood royalty cred was higher than ever. She closed the generation gap at her beach house. Her guests on any given night could include Brando, Lauren Bacall and David O. Selznick, Jack Nicholson and Gene Kelly, Dennis Hopper, and Andy Warhol. Mia Farrow and Frank Sinatra could come together and both hang out with contemporaries. Jane's brother, Peter, would bring over the rock stars he was hanging out with in Laurel Canyon, while Vadim invited over Agnes Varda, who was living in Los Angeles at the time. One of these parties on the 4th of July was dubbed the Party of the Century. Gene Seberg was there with Ramon Gary, and so were Warren Beatty, William Wyler, Sidney Poitier, Sharon Tate, and George Cukor. Thanks to Peter, the Birds were the hired band for the night. Another guest was Jane's childhood friend, Jill, the daughter of former MGM chief, Dory Sherry who was now married with kids. At one point during the night, Jill got very drunk and wandered away from the party. And on the beach, a group of strange men dragged her to a motel where they raped her. Hours later, a traumatized Jill made her way back to Jane's house, where the party was still in progress. Jane helped her, gave her a tranquilizer, and when she had calmed down and stopped crying, Jane convinced Jill it would be best for her to go home. Many, many years later, Jane would write about this regretfully, but at the time, she wasn't sure she believed Jill's story. And she definitely didn't want to tell Vadim about it. She didn't want to ruin his party. That summer, Jane attended a meeting of the Congress of Racial Equality at her chase director, Arthur Penn's house, where Jane's co-star, Marlon Brando, spoke powerfully about the issue. Through her friendship with Brando, Jane became woke to the civil rights movement and the idea that a white celebrity had a responsibility to use their media power to draw attention to important stuff. Brando wasn't the typical Hollywood hippie. He was super passionate about a range of causes, and he put ample time and money behind the things he believed in. He soon invited Jane to another meeting at Penn's house, this one for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, where the movie stars, including Paul Newman and Rita Hayworth, listened to students describe their experiences at sit-ins in the segregated South. When Vanessa Redgrave stood up to speak, Jane watched her in awe. Here, she thought, here was a woman who controlled her own destiny. Jane began volunteering with the student group and considering the ways in which she, like Brando and Redgrave, could use her own privilege differently. In August 1965, while Jane was still working on the chase, 
The Watts riots began. Jane and Vadim's maid, Martha, lived in Watts, and she rounded up her own children as well as a bunch of neighborhood kids and brought them to the Malibu house to ride out the unrest, which erupted in protest against local police brutality and lasted several days. Jane was extremely upset about what was happening, and when Vadim went back to Paris to try to set up their next movie there, she called him and asked him to come back. She decided she was finally ready to get married. Watts was still visibly burning when Jane, Vadim, and their friends flew out of Los Angeles en route to Las Vegas, where on August 15th, Jane and Vadim would exchange vows at the Dunes Hotel. As he was slipping the ring on her finger, which Jane had to keep upright because the ring he had borrowed for the impromptu ceremony was too big, Vadim looked in Jane's eyes and believed she was thinking, Fuck you. Her actual thoughts, though scaled back a bit, were in the same ballpark. As she described it later, she had been thinking, I don't know why I'm doing this. The night didn't get better. After a boozy dinner, Jane told her new husband she thought they should go to bed. But he wanted to gamble. Jane ended up sharing the bridal suite that night with Vadim's mother. And the next day, Jane did what she had learned to do when things didn't feel right. As she put it, bury the hurt and move on. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode, which include the names of our research sources, as well as more information. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and find us on Instagram and Facebook, too. And if you haven't already, subscribing to the show in iTunes and rating and reviewing us there really helps people find it. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. <laughs>